Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. I'm helping Jaime by advertising the Buddhist Bicycle Pilgrimage. It's uh, September 29th through 30th. I think he said 83 miles on day one and 43 on day two. So you might want to start training if you're planning on doing it. <laughs> um, if you're interested, go to www.dharmawheel.org. Wheels with an S. And there should be flyers on the table back there. And there should be one up on the bulletin board as well. And I want to say that I did this two years ago, and it was amazing. Just really very community um, building and lots of great food and fun and people and highly recommend it. That's it. Oh, and I was going to remind everyone that the um, book library is here. There, it's a little, yeah, it's a little paltry today, but. <laughs> start with that. I'm looking for a quote that I thought I'd start with, but I can't find it. That's okay. Okay. So, as I, I mentioned before the break, this evening I, I want to talk about um, how to stay with our practice and use our practice to stay with these moments that are really difficult, when we're going through a really hard time in our life, uh, when we are experiencing difficult situations or difficult emotions, um, difficult relationships. How do we stay in our practice in those moments? And as I said, I'm giving this day retreat on on Sunday at Spirit Rock with this theme in mind. Um, so this has been going through my head for, for a while on how do we actually stay in practice. What are our tendencies when it gets really hard? Do we stay in our practice or do we look elsewhere? And the truth is there's a lot for me to say about this topic. So because this is being being recorded right now and put, being put out on Dharma Seed, I'll just say this again, that I think this will be a multi-part talk. Um, so I, I will probably continue this talk um, the next time and maybe even the next time I, I am here. So we're just going to begin the conversation this evening. So in some ways, uh, it's a bit counterintuitive to stay present with difficulty when we are really suffering, when we're really stressed out, when we're experiencing difficult emotion and situations our knee-jerk reaction is to push it away, to get rid of it. Um, maybe for some of you, you get into fix-it mode, uh, which is actually kind of the same thing. <laughs> just looks nicer. <laughs> so there's this push-away effect that we have. That seems more intuitive. It's counterintuitive to do what we're asked to do in this practice. What we're asked to do in this practice is to actually turn towards the dukkha, 
the suffering, the difficult. To stay present with it, to stay with it. And there's something in us that knows that deeply. There's something in us that brings us to this practice that already has that understanding. So perhaps, um, perhaps that is our wisdom self that understands this deeply, that really to heal, to wake up, to have better understanding and clarity, to be happier in our lives, that we have to face this stuff. We can't keep running away from it or bandaging it up or covering it up. The wisdom side of us knows better. So perhaps it is intuitive when we are sitting in wisdom. And perhaps it's not intuitive when we are sitting in fear, when we're driven by our fear and our confusion. And I think it's, this is a nice way to think of it when we find ourselves in those places where something is really hard and we don't want to stay with it. We don't want to look at it. Maybe it's something that's familiar. This is that thing that comes up over and over again. I just can't. I just don't want to deal with this. I don't want to look at this. To know that in those moments it's not wisdom speaking. That this is fear speaking. This is um, a lack of clarity maybe speaking. Pema Chodron, in her book, When Things Fall Apart, I've had this book a really long time. It was fun kind of looking through it. I've underlined all these passages probably when I first started this practice in 2000, when was it, 2004? Um, And the pages are brown and stained and the front has stains on it. I love books like this. It means it's a good one. (laughs) I've come to it many times. And in it, uh, she has a lot to say about this working with the difficult. And she has this line where she says that fear is a natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. Fear is the natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. This is essential for us to wake up. And yet, to move closer to the truth comes in uh, this, uh, this fear, this not understanding that kicks us into push away uh, aversion mode so quickly if we don't catch it. And so... Uh, it seems almost impossible in a way at times to continue to stay with it if the closer we get to that truth, the more and more fear arises. Have any of you experienced this in your life or in your practice that it seemed like the closer you were getting to something that was really important internally, 
that the fear just starts to bubble up. How many of you have experienced something like that? Yeah. Oh, a lot of you. So perhaps this is really part of the human experience. It's what makes this really challenging. Uh, And yet we're really drawn to it in some way. Those of us who are on this path are drawn to it. So what happens, though, when that fear arises? Uh, What happens when we find ourselves in great difficulty? Do we stay with our practice? Do we turn towards practices like this? Or do we have other coping mechanisms that uh, are just so much easier (laughs) and so much more pleasant, perhaps, in the moment? You know, do you go to uh, binge-watching Netflix? (laughs) Or are you binging something else? You know, we turn to alcohol and drugs and sex and all kinds of things. Do we find ourselves withdrawn? Do we find ourselves trying to figure it out relentlessly just to fix it so that ultimately we can get rid of it? Do we find ourselves getting tight and irritated and... Um, having a loss of patience and connection, not only with ourselves, but the people around us. What do we do when we find ourselves in these difficult places? Is it possible to, in just a moment, it it really takes uh, a breath to come back to our wiser self to presence with whatever it is that we're struggling with. So ask yourself this for a moment. You might just take a moment. You can close your eyes and think about what are your tendencies with difficulty. Maybe you have examples of it that are happening in real time. (laughs) Or maybe it's been a while but I'm sure that we can all think of a time when we were facing uh, life's dukkhas. What are our habits? What is it that you take refuge in? Is it your practice, the familiarity of wisdom practices? Is it in the people who carry those practices, your kalyanamitas, your spiritual friends, your wise friends? Or is it in something else? Some of you there might be a definitive yes or a definitive no. My guess is that most of us go back and forth. And it just depends. I can think of many times where I found myself uh, stuck in the muck, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. And uh, how long it took to actually finally be able to... Um, 
just come back to something as simple as the practice and then finding such relief out of that. But how long it took, all the suffering and all the trying to cover it up and trying to um, uh, figure it out or deny it in some way, push it away in some way. All that energy spent. And then there's this moment oftentimes where we just kind of give up all that. And we come back to something else. Come back to a practice of wisdom. I know that when I'm teaching on retreat and um, interviewing or, or meeting with the practitioners on a daily basis and tracking their practice and seeing, you know, um, how they're doing and what how they're practicing, uh, what's working for them, what's not working for them. And there's always people on on retreat uh, who are experiencing um, some major upset. They've probably come into the retreat with it. Um, they've lost a relationship or a job. They've um, been battling depression or some other illness. Um, uh, they are just feeling really lost or really sad or scared and maybe not even sure why. And, you know, on retreat, you often get these instructions that are given to a large group like this, and they're general. And they're the typical ones often, you know, pay attention to your breath, pay attention to your body, walk, do your walking meditation, uh, follow the schedule. And I think that is really supportive for most people. And then there are those of us who um, just be mindful of it. Just be mindful of your difficulty, of your dukkha. is not enough. It's not enough support to be able to stay steady with that difficulty, with that fear, uh, with a mind that just wants anything but to stay present. Um, To just pay attention to the breath can feel impossible. It might be impossible when we are really stirred up by our life circumstance. And so I've been exploring this a little bit in my own practice and also um, with other people's practice to see, well, what then is needed to come back to this practice and feel stable in it. And so perhaps I know that for those who are on retreat and experiencing this, um, it's a great relief to be told, why don't you go for a walk? Be really present, but just go for a walk for the sake of going for a walk. Or why don't you do some compassion practice? or some forgiveness practice? Or why don't you lay down and do your practices because you're so tight and sitting up like this and trying to keep it all together is really not working for you? And why would it? So I get to be in this advantaged seat of being able to uh, hold perhaps uh, a light of wisdom on some, uh, with people going through really difficult times. 
to say, just shift the practice a little bit. Just change it a little bit. What will be most supportive for you? And sometimes there can be this feeling like, well, if I do that, if I lay down, if I go for a walk, if I move my body, if I cry in the middle of the hall, um, if I just do metta for the rest of the retreat, then I've failed. Then I'm not really practicing. I'm not really doing it. And this is an unfortunate viewpoint that often doesn't last long because we can't hold it. <laughs> it's, it's not, uh, in the end, it doesn't become helpful or rational. But I understand where it comes from. There's this idea that in order to be practicing uh, for whatever your purpose is, whether it's for just more happiness or more relaxation or to wake up, there's maybe this idea of what that practice has to look like. And that some of these more tender, supportive practices are somehow something else, something different. And so we can be in this great battle, this great struggle, even within our practice on how to hold the difficult. The practice becomes what's difficult. It becomes our hurdle and is just another layer of our dukkha. So how can we bring this practice to our difficulty in a way that actually is nourishing and supportive? And can we see our tenderness and our ability to be nourishing to ourselves as wisdom, as deep, deep practice, and perhaps incredibly necessary to really understand and to open more and more into more wisdom. There are a number of practices that we can engage in. And this is what I want to share with you over time, are a number of practices that um, perhaps one will be helpful in a time of difficulty. Um, perhaps many or all of them will be used if you're going through a really hard time. They're just different ways to look at the dukkha from different angles so that we're not um, feeling like we're holding this huge weight and that there's no way of penetrating it. If we can think of it more as this uh, experience that is just a tangle of experience, a tangle of frustration and memory and childhood and hurts and disappointments and loss, death, fear. If we can start to untangle these parts of ourselves and see them as just these threads that are so much more manageable, um, we can stay with the difficult. We can stay with it with our, with our mindfulness, with our practice. So coming at it from all these different angles uh, with tenderness is actually really wise and helpful. The Buddha himself, when he uh, was practicing before he was the Buddha, actually, uh, was practicing in many different ways, ways in which he um, was starving himself and uh, refusing uh, food and um, 
you know, laying on beds made out of nails and um, all these different practices that were popular at the time that were meant to elevate um, uh, the spiritual body and the spiritual understanding uh, outside of the body. Um, that the body was not uh, um, used as a way of, uh, that it wasn't used in a way that was nourishing necessarily. And there was a point where it wasn't working and he knew it. And uh, was actually uh, very, very sick by these other practices. And ended up needing to uh, nourish himself. And it was a huge turning point that he began to take food. And he began to sit in this more restful way. Uh, And then, of course, we have the um, classical story of him finally sitting beneath uh, the Bodhi tree and surrounding himself in this beautiful nature and going through all of the dukkhas in his mind and all the fears that arise from those dukkhas that we all sit with when we sit down with ourselves and get quiet. And he was able to stay with it. But uh, one of the versions of the story is that he wasn't alone, that he actually put his hand down to the earth and felt uh, the support of the earth and the ancestors and uh, all, all the Buddhas and the enlightened ones that came before as witness for him to continue and to call this seat of, I'm worthy to be here. When I hear that, I think that is what a tender, connected, nourishing practice to be with the difficult. What a beautiful way to call upon the earth in this way. Uh, And it's just one example. And yet, sometimes we think of the Buddha as this very um, maybe um, uh, I actually I'm going to change what I was about to say because I think it depends on how much we know about the Buddha and his life but if we don't know much about the Buddha and his life we might have this, this preconceived idea that he's this very um, almost rigid um, mountain like figure um, and when you learn more about him, there's, there's such tenderness and kindness. And he taught in so many different ways to support so many thousands and thousands and thousands of practitioners in their own struggles. The way he taught was very individual. He taught in a way that met the people that he was um, um, teaching. He met them in their struggle and gave them the antidote to whatever, the, whatever it was. And there was a, a, a vast amount of teachings meant to support and nourish and help us be with this human experience. But we don't always recall that or we don't always know that. And so we have this idea, this preconceived idea of what our practice should be. And so we just add another layer of struggle and hurdle to our 
freedom. So I offer all of that as a perspective to do what we'll do next, which is a practice of great tenderness. Um, I thought tonight what we would start with is the forgiveness practice, or a forgiveness practice. This isn't a forgiveness practice that was um, that you'd find in the suttas. This is a more modernized practice. But uh, I like to think that it is... Um, in the same vein of the offerings of the Buddha. Certainly, um, it has evolved from, from the tradition that he started. And I want to start with the forgiveness practice because often I feel like it's where we need to start when we're going through great difficulty. Mostly a forgiveness of ourselves. There may be uh, certainly people who have harmed us and we might be suffering greatly because of it. And it might be time for that forgiveness, but it might not. Oftentimes the place to start is not with those human beings, but with ourselves. The way that perhaps we've harmed ourselves in this process of working out this tangle of dukkha. We may not have always worked with it skillfully. We may have hurt others uh, who were in our wake as we've been trying to figure this out in our own uh, confused way. And so in order to settle the mind and settle this body, I deeply believe that some level of forgiveness uh, has to be cultivated for ourself and then branching that out to forgiveness of others. So this evening what I'd like us to do is start with ourself and just experiment with that. And then perhaps another night we'll do the fuller version of this. And this is not a practice that we want to jump into. This isn't a practice that should be done quickly. Um, To engage in and to begin to cultivate forgiveness for ourselves or anybody, um, we need to really honor where we are with that process and honor all the different parts of us that are here in that process. So it might be that in our head, we're really ready for forgiveness. But it might be that our body says something different and is totally not on board. (laughs) Or our heart might be completely guarded and not ready for to fully open towards forgiveness. And so it's important for us to take our time through this practice. And so I will be um, guiding us in a way that hopefully is respectful of that and respectful of each of us wherever we are with this process. So to begin with, for some of you, you might know that sitting up tall and in a way that feels really strong 
when I, I teach children um, meditation, and we often talk about this as a noble posture. So taking on this, this sense of inner nobility and respect. This might be the posture that helps you hold whatever it is that needs to be held. For others of you, this is too tight. This is not the posture for you. And so for some of you, you might actually want to fan out and go to a wall and lean up against the wall or lean back into your chair. You might want to grab a blanket and wrap it around yourself. Uh, You might want to grab some extra pillows and sit yourself up in a way that just feels completely held and, and supported. Almost as if perhaps this body can't uh, hold it all, but maybe uh, other things can. Maybe we can set ourselves up to be able to fully relax, allow the body to relax in a way that feels completely held. So why don't we take a minute to get what we need and to move where we need to move so that we can do this practice fully. So there's some blankets on the side. It is warm, so you might not need a blanket, but you, it, there's something also very um, comforting about a blanket or protective about one. And so you might want one on hand. There's extra pillows, um, the only thing I, I ask is that um, as you're laying back, that um, just out of respect for where we are, that uh, we don't point our feet at um, the Buddha behind me um, or uh, the monk who's sitting here with us this evening. Just out of respect. So now that you you have your space, again, maybe moving your body in a way that brings you into the posture that feels the most supportive right now, whether it's that uh, feeling of, of strength and that nobility in your posture, or perhaps you're someone who... Um, finds yourself holding yourself in that way a little too much. Maybe some of us more on the type A scale, feeling like uh, we need to perform in a certain way in our practice. Especially those of you, you know who you are, lean back, let go a little bit or a lot of it. If you can, close your eyes. If it's too vulnerable to close your eyes, keep them open. Let your gaze be soft. I'd like you to start with this body sitting here. 
Feel the breath and breathe in a way that's nurturing. So it might be a much fuller breath. Feeling the body or feeling the whole body breathe. For some of you, it might be just a very quiet, easeful breath. See what's most supportive. You might uh, notice if there's any um, holding or tightness in the body, any emotion that is arising, or maybe it's been sitting there all day. I invite you to take a hand and put it on these areas of the body. So you might find tightness at the neck or the chest or at the shoulders, at the stomach. Sometimes it's our our legs are holding a lot. And allow yourself to um, feel connected to that by bringing a hand there. These are hands and this is touch of care. This is coming from your more wise self. James Barrows, who's also a guiding teacher here, often um, uses the technique of putting a hand on his cheek to bring in that feeling of care and tenderness, just feeling that sweetness of presence, almost like a loving parent might, just to soothe that upset child, just put a hand on the cheek. Breathe deeply. And then you might bring to mind ways in which perhaps you've not always been so kind to this body. It might be as simple as just overworking or being distracted, not giving it attention. It might be more than that. It might be something related to your consumption. It might be related to your relationship with the body. There's been a lot of uh, dislike or hatred. Take a moment to see what that feels like as you bring attention to um, your relationship to the body. 
as new emotions might arise, or even numbness. Again, using the hands to just stay connected or using the breath to stay connected, stay with it. some phrases that in your mind you can either just listen and take in for yourself or in your mind you can repeat to yourself. There are many ways that I have hurt and harmed myself. Perhaps even this body I have betrayed or abandoned myself and this body many times through thought, word, or deed, knowingly or unknowingly. Breathe deeply. For the ways that I have harmed this body, I ask myself for forgiveness. Or it might be that you ask your body for forgiveness. And then the wisdom part of you says, I forgive you. I forgive you. You can take a moment to feel this precious body as a signal of your precious life, of its worthiness. the sweetness of its impermanence, of all that it's done for you through the years. I ask for your forgiveness. I forgive you. And then not to leave the body behind, but to stay embodied as much as possible. And bringing attention now to the part of us that is our, our heart, our emotional self, our feeling self. The side of us that opens widely to the world 
and then with the same capacity closes down in great protection you might take a hand and put it where you feel connected with this part of yourself often we relate the heart center as being connected to this part of ourself but it might not be there it might be in your belly might be in the shoulders or in the arms. Breathe deeply into these places. Acknowledging the side of yourself. It's the emotional body or emotional energy. There are many ways in which we've denied it, tried to force it in some way. Allowed it perhaps to overrule our wisdom. Not kept it balanced. Perhaps there's been a relationship with it that comes from a place of hatred. Perhaps it's a part of ourselves that feels a bit disowned or underdeveloped. There are many ways that I have hurt and harmed myself. There are many ways that I've hurt and harmed this emotional body. I've uh, uh, betrayed or abandoned myself many times through thought, word, or deed, knowingly or unknowingly. I ask for forgiveness. wisdom says I forgive you breathing deeply this part of ourselves Sometimes when we engage in this way, there can be a feeling of numbness that comes in or disconnect. It's okay. Stay with that. It's all part of it. Stay present. bringing attention to then our mind just another piece
is our relationship with our mind. Do we trust it? Is it frustrating to us? Do we feel it? Is something that brings hatred or embarrassment or feelings of not good enough when we compare ourselves to others and their minds? Have we given it time to be trained, to be balanced? Have we given it the attention that it needs to be healthy and well? Have we been labeled with mental illness? And so find that part of ourselves unworthy. What's our relationship with our mind? There are many ways that I have hurt or harmed myself. I've betrayed or abandoned myself many times through thought, word, or deed, knowingly or unknowingly. In the ways that I've done this with my mind, I ask for forgiveness. And wisdom says, I forgive you. acknowledge that there are many parts of ourselves that I'm not mentioning. There might be parts of ourselves like our sexuality or some aspect of our history, our lineage. There might be parts of ourselves uh, that don't have names yet. but have been harmed by us. So holding our our fuller self, our whole self, there are many ways that I've hurt and harmed myself. I betrayed or abandoned myself many times through thought, through word, or deed, knowingly or unknowingly. For the ways that I've hurt myself and caused my own pain and suffering, I ask for forgiveness.
while breathing deeply, taking deep, long breaths, letting the body move in whatever way it feels it needs to. It might need to stretch, it might need to stand. It might need to continue to be held if you're using your hands in that way. You're welcome to keep your eyes closed and inward if that's what you choose. Otherwise, you can open your eyes and just bring in the room. Notice where you are. In this really sweet space. It's just been marinated with practice and love and wisdom for many, many years. This is the uh, one way of engaging in a self-forgiveness practice. And then, of course, this can be expanded out, asking for forgiveness of others, which would be the next place to go. And then offering forgiveness to those who have caused us harm, even great harm. But again, this all is done in time. So as we went through that practice, if you felt numb, disconnected, um, uh, a, a voice inside that said, no way, I'm not giving myself forgiveness for this. I don't deserve it. But that's all part of the process. It's totally normal and all part of the process. And it's uh, forgiveness happens in its own time. It's not something we can ever force on ourselves or on anybody else that it comes in its own time. And all we can do is incline towards it and open to the possibility, perhaps create intention towards it. That's all we can really do. Um, And then, of course, stay present. Stay here with it. So I hope that that was a supportive practice, and it's one that you can you can find uh, online. This one in particular is one that I got from uh, Jack Cornfield. If you Google Jack Cornfield forgiveness meditation, you'll find it. I think he even has YouTube videos with this uh, with his guided practice, and I'm sure you'd find other forgiveness practices out there too. If that one just didn't have the flavor of what would really work for you, you find what works. But it's just one example of how we can use uh, the practice in a tender way, in a supportive way to support us through the difficulty and to stay there with it in a way that um, is for our benefit and for, um, uh, for the process of waking up. That it's not separate in some way from the deep practice that we want to engage in. So I'd really like to hear how that was for you all, and we don't have time. (laughs) Um, It would be really sweet to um, not only hear from you, but have you share with each other, because I bet there's lots of similar threads and so much um, that came from that that we can learn from each other. So next time I, I do this, I'll create. I'll make sure there's more time. If you come on Sunday, there'll be lots of time. We'll be doing lots of things like this, lots of practices like this. 
with a lot of time to be together and experience it together. Um, I don't think I received any... um, uh, We don't have any cards this evening. Okay. So then I'll end us with a dedication of of merit and a blessing. Um, As I mentioned before the break... And we, we spend time at the end of every uh, um, practice period that we come together like this. And we dedicate it to all beings. We come often for ourselves, right? We come here for our own benefit. And maybe we leave feeling like we just did this for our own benefit. And there's truth in that. And there's more to it than that. Uh, when we practice in this way, Um, it's really nice to reflect upon the ripple effects of this practice, that there's ways in which um, uh, it could never just be for us, that when we are waking up in ourselves, that it has a ripple effect in the world, that it affects the people we love and are closest to, it affects the people we work with, it affects the people in our direct community and our larger communities, Uh, that it ripples out in the world in ways we can't even understand. And so in that spirit, we can dedicate the merit of our time here together and our collective practice to all beings everywhere. And wish that all beings, uh, may all beings be happy and have contentment in their lives. May all beings be healthy in their minds and in their body. May all beings feel safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings be free. May we all be free. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.